So the New York Times, um, along with all digital media companies, switched from a business model that was based on mass subscription, right, advertisements to to a mass audience, to uh, a metric that's usually called engagement, which means how many people engaged with your content online, how many people shared it, how many people commented on it, how many people posted it to Facebook, right? How many people posted it to Twitter? Did it start to trend on Twitter, right? And we know that the most extreme people are always the most engaged. And the New York Times has been very explicit about this. Um, And if the elites, if New York Times is doing this, right, you can imagine what everybody else is doing. But it's very much about generating that sort of emotional connection to the news as opposed to um, trying to get the broadest audience, which means really uh, pairing back on the emotions and delivering something that's a lot less delicious to share on Facebook, right? Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you've probably heard me and my guests talk about our frustration and sometimes wry amusement with political bias in the news media, especially the kind of elitist left-wing bias that's in heavy rotation in the opinion and culture sections of big news organizations like the New York Times, the Washington Post, and public radio. We often talk about the social movements that are driving this trend, but we less often think about the practical reasons and bottom line root causes. That's exactly what my guest, Batya Ungar Sargon, explores in her new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. In this conversation, she explains how journalism underwent a status revolution with the job of reporter going from an almost blue collar profession to the province of the elite. She also explains how the digital era forced a reframing of the business model of media organizations. The bills were no longer paid by big advertisers, but by subscribers who demanded fealty to their political biases. Batya, who was formerly the opinion editor of The Forward and is currently deputy opinion editor of Newsweek, considers herself not just on the left, but something of a socialist. And she talks about her worries that the often oversimplistic social justice posturing that dominates mainstream discourse today is distracting from the real emergency of economic inequality. We also talk about some lesser emergencies, specifically the pronunciation of my last name, which has been a source of confusion for both myself and others throughout my life and may warrant further discussion at another time. Batia Angar Sargon, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Megan Dome. Uh, I love your podcast. <laughs> I love your bravery. I love your courage. I love your integrity. You're such a um, leader in a place where leadership is so lacking and so necessary. And I know that I speak for your listeners when I say that. So thank you for everything you do. And thank you for having me. Oh, wow. Well, it's been a great conversation. So um, thanks for doing this. Uh, <laughs> See you later. Um, <laughs> well, that is so nice of you to say. And I love that you pronounce my, na- my name pronunciation. I think I'm going to have to devote an entire episode to the confusion around my name pronunciation because I I changed it. Um, I changed it kind of halfway through my adulthood. Um, but I think doom or dome is actually, I, th- I should move on to like the fourth. Wait, anyway, how do you say it? Down, well, I, I, it's dome. But the funny thing is, 
I said Dom for a long time. Although as a kid, we said Dom. Anyway, we will not waste your time talking about my <laughs> just as a little, just as a little, uh, little, little teaser for the, for the audience <laughs> someday. And I'll explain this anyway. So we're talking about your new book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. And this is one of those books that does that very important thing, I think, of presenting the factual explanation for something that a lot of people sort of feel intuitively, but haven't been able to quantify. Like people know there's something wrong with news media, like something that goes beyond fake news and social media distortions and that kind of thing, but they they can't quite put their finger on it. So I know you can't encapsulate the whole book in a single answer, but if someone were to say to you, essentially, Batya, what the hell is going on here? How did this happen? <laughs> How would you begin to answer? Okay, so um, I would start by saying that a lot of people have noticed a shift in our mainstream news media. And it's not just people on the right who've noticed it. A lot of liberals and a lot of lefties like me, because <laughs> I'm on the left, um, have noticed it as well. And it's not just um, anecdotal. It's not just our emotional feelings like, oh, something is shifting. Sociologists have tracked a massive shift in the priorities of the liberal mainstream national press. And what they found was by trawling the archives of the New York Times and the Washington Post and NPR and even the Wall Street Journal, what they found was an absolute skyrocketing in terms that we might call, for lack of a better word, woke. So words that connote a sort of um, liberal far left view of issues of identity. So for example, words like white privilege, okay, words like white supremacy, words like transphobia, Islamophobia, right? Um, these words started to just absolutely skyrocket in the mainstream press. And it's actually started maybe sooner than a lot of us noticed. So according to the sociologists, and again, this is quantitative data, this shift started around 2011, 2012, which is around the time that the New York Times um, erected its paywall and started to see itself or try to see itself as a digital first publication. And what I argue in the book is that this new obsession with race that's really very recently become a moral panic is not actually about race and it's not even about politics or political polarization so much as it is about class. And the argument I make in the book is that if you sort of track the history of American journalism from a populist point of view, which is my point of view, you'll see that journalists underwent a status revolution throughout the course of the 20th century. You know, journalism used to be this working class trade. It was something that you picked up on the job. It was something that in 1937, less than half of all journalists had a college degree because right, it was something you your parents did not want you to do. I mean, right. I guess that's still the case, but they, they were <laughs> really kind of embarrassed about it. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. And you because you didn't even make that much money as a journalist, you would live in a neighborhood that was a working class neighborhood and you would make maybe a little bit more than your neighbor, the plumber, or your neighbor, the electrician. Today, <laughs> well, that's you know, something that has changed. Okay. That, that's absolutely changed. Today, journalists live in places like Park Slope where they make a little bit less than their neighbor, the corporate lawyer, right? It's become um, a job of highly educated people. So 92% of journalists now have a college degree. And as we've seen over the last 20 years, the economy today in America is really, really working for uh, a meritocratic elite. So people who work in knowledge industry jobs, people whose jobs depend on having, you know, an elite education or people with graduate degrees, you know, the economy is really paying off for people like that. And so journalists didn't just become increasingly highly educated and much more liberal, but they also became increasingly affluent along with the rest of the American intelligentsia. And what I argue in my book is that the woke uh, revolution, the sort of moral panic around issues of race, is really just the last stage of this status revolution. Journalists who see themselves actually as, you know, furthering the, the cause of justice, like they really believe that obsessing over race in the Kendian fashion, right? You're either racist or anti-racist. You're either talking about race in every moment or you are actually doing racism, right? They really believe that that is the way to make America more just. But what I argue is that it's a, it's a big distraction from the actually disgusting levels of income inequality in America and this class divide that journalists have actually benefited from very, very much at a very, very literal economic level. So that's the argument of the book. <laughs> You've been a journalist for a long time. You've written for most of the major outlets as a freelancer. You were you were a uh, you were the an opinion editor at the Forward. You're now uh, the opinion deputy opinion editor of Newsweek. When did you personally start to notice these changes? Back in 2011, <laughs> 2012, or did you kind of catch on a little bit later, as I did? Um, definitely later. I definitely was woke for a long time. Um, I definitely was in that moment, which helps me, um, understand that these, you know, it's not a cynical ploy. You know, I know that sometimes I, I sort of say, you know, I, I sometimes in, there are moments in the book where I think it, it sounds like I'm arguing that it's, you know, a cynical ploy, but I don't think it's a cynical ploy. I think people really, really believe this stuff. And I really believed it. And I, I think, you know, there were sort of a number of chinks in the, in, in, in the armor. Um, you know, the first I would say was, uh, there was a 2018 Yale study that came out that found that there's a difference in how white liberals and white conservatives talk to black and Latino people. Do you know this study? Megan? Yes. yes. <laughs> so the study found that white liberals dumb down their speech when they talk to black people and white conservatives don't. And I remember reading that study and thinking to myself, and we are the side that call ourselves the non-racists and they are the side we call the racists. Like, I, I just remember like really sitting there and like, it was, it was astonishing because I instantly recognized myself and everybody I knew in that. Like that's, and, and I, I remember thinking, I don't understand right now what it is, but there's a sickness in a worldview that produces that under the guise of being a good person. You know, like that was really um, a big moment for me, even though, of course, it didn't I didn't immediately stop being woke in 2018. You know, it took a little bit longer. But um, but that I mean, that I really think about that study all the time, like that there, there's something inherently patronizing about the way the left and liberals think about people of color and it's dehumanizing and people of color do not identify with this language. I mean, that was another thing was like. Right. 
reading this, the, 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 again, from sociologists, just the data coming out about the great awakening, how white liberals had become so much more far to the left on issues of identity than, 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 than people of color themselves, you know, uh, ostensibly on their behalf. So that sort of stopped. I started to really feel like there was something off about that. Um, and then there were other things, you know, learning about the deaths of despair and how, tightly correlated deaths of despair are with voting for Trump and how instead of being like, wow, these people, they're so downwardly mobile, they're so hopeless that they are killing themselves by opioid overdoses and suicide and alcoholism. What are we doing wrong? Like, how have we abandoned these people? Instead of doing that, we, you know, we in the media and the liberal media, the, we, the elites, we just called them racists. And, and I, I remember thinking like, there's something wrong about that. Like that mismatch between how we talk about these people and the, and the lack of opportunity they have, the way that we talk about the losers, you know, the contempt with which we talk about the people who are our, our, you know, our fellow Americans. That, yeah, that was really, I mean, that started to bother me more and more. And then I always say that, like, my rabbi was actually finally the person who, you know, I had Trump derangement syndrome, like everybody else in 2016. And, and uh, um, when the best person, you know, on the planet, like a man who, you know, you know, in the winter walks around taking his clothing off and giving it to homeless people, when he tells you he likes Trump, you stop thinking like every single person who voted for this person must be a racist because it's sort of incompatible with this person's virtue. And and that was very powerful as well. You know, like a little bit, I think like most of us, you know, that it was sort of very gradual and then all at once. What about you, Megan? When did you start to sort of sense that something was off and 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 that you know the things that you thought you thought were not maybe true. Yeah, I started to notice it probably around 2014 and I noticed it in the context of the conversation around women and feminism. So before the moral panic around race, we had moral panic around women's rights and that preceded even the Me Too movement. So I, there was a lot of sort of online feminism, a lot of the narrative uh, in places like BuzzFeed and the kind of, you know, the digital news organizations just had this kind of default setting that it was a terrible time for women and that it like had never been a worse time to be a woman when in fact it has it then and now has never been a better time to be a woman in the West, certainly. And so I thought there was a very strange disconnect between the way I had grown up just sort of perceiving my opportunities and place in the world as a female and the kind of message that was suddenly being blanketed across the media as, as a kind of given. So I started looking at that um, and kind of investigating kind of generational divides. But I think what's so interesting in this book, you know, you really kind of, not kind of, you link it to how all of these news organizations, particularly the New York Times, went to a subscription model. Uh, and if you are, if you have to appeal to your subscribers, you really have to change your framework. Um, and apparently this kind of, you know, these sorts of white liberal subscribers want to hear all the time about the oppression in our midst. Right. And I think that was sort of the nut I was trying to crack. That was the question I went in with. Like, I know that these views that America is an unrepentant white supremacy and that America is waging a genocide against black men and that, you know, uh, it's worse, you know, for women today than it has ever been. And ever. so forth. Ever. Like, yeah. I knew I know that, you know, most Americans think this is malarkey. Right. Like, so how how is it that not just The New York Times, but 
all the outlets are now saying this same thing that most of us know is not true. That that was the thing that I wanted to crack. Where did a market develop that was catering only to the extremes? Like, how did that become profitable as opposed to catering to the vast middle? That was really the question that I think my book um, set out to answer. Um, and it, it is fascinating. Um, it, it's a combination of things, of course. So it's the status revolution among journalists where they're all now educated at these same, you know, elite universities, elite institutions, as the industry has become smaller and smaller, uh, outlets can afford to only take from, you know, the top 1% of, of universities and schools, where of course, everybody's being taught, I'm sorry, but they are critical race theory, um, coming out with the same sort of worldview. But it's not just that, it's also the business model. So the New York Times um, along with all digital media companies, switched from a business model that was based on mass subscription, right, advertisements to, to a mass audience, to uh, a metric that's usually called engagement, which means how many people engaged with your content online, how many people shared it, how many people commented on it, how many people posted it to Facebook, right? How many people posted it to Twitter? Did it start to trend on Twitter, right? And we know that the most extreme people are always the most engaged. And and the New York Times has been very explicit about this. Um, and if the elites, if New York Times is doing this, right, you can imagine what everybody else is doing. But it's very much about generating that sort of emotional connection to the news as opposed to um, trying to get the broadest audience, which means really uh, pairing back on the emotions and delivering something that's a lot less delicious to share on Facebook, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think this is a point that people really often don't realize, which is that before the digital age, Newspapers, they were propelled by that full page Macy's ad on the back of the A section of the New York Times. Like there was no um, sort of arrangement between the reader and and the reporter or the opinion journalist or or the paper. It was like we write and you read, and the bills are paid by these advertisers. And that model, that business model, just didn't translate into into digital media and everything had to be recalibrated. I mean, it's a very basic point, but I think it's kind of easy to overlook. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, <laughs> when, when you read something online on the internet and you feel that sort of that feeling of rage, you know, that feeling that's like, it feels actually like road rage, right? Like how could somebody possibly think this thing and you really want to kill them. And so you post on Twitter in like a very aggressive way. Like every time you feel that feeling, someone's making a million dollars. You know, like it's not natural to feel that way about about strangers. And we have just been hacked to 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 operate like emoting automatons to share content online, you know, and it's like that. that's I don't that's where my hope comes from. Actually, I don't think the media is going to change very quickly because there's a lot of money in what they're doing. But we can sort of deprive them of the means of doing that by just recognizing every single time you feel that road rage feeling looking at something on the Internet written by a stranger someone's making a million dollars, like literally, you know? <laughs> was there a moment in your career as an editor or as a reporter where you could not get a story through or you had a reaction to a particular story that surprised you and that kind of put you on this course? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, my the articles that I wrote before I became an opinion editor were sort of more long for me uh, feature types. 
So they weren't really the the sort that people, you know, go, ooh, online. You know what I mean? They were just, and then I became an opinion editor. And the pleasure, of course, was to find new and surprising ways to shock readers into considering a different opinion. Um, <laughs> you so, see you know, the word shock. That's interesting. Yeah, you because you want to you want to give them something new, right? It's the news after all. But there's so there's a real tension between, on the one hand, wanting people to click on an article, so coming up with like a really spicy headline, and then on the other hand, wanting people to actually consider the argument, which is something that is really undermined by having too spicy of a headline. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But was there ever like, do you remember particular stories that you were assigning or writers that you wanted to work with that um, you were getting pushback for? Well, I've been very blessed as an editor to have like full autonomy. It's kind of, I wouldn't take a job where I didn't have that. Um, but I did like at the forward, for example, I this became this is now Derogur, but when I was at the forward, I remember like in 2018, um, I would routinely run Republicans and have people who were my actual friends denounce me on Twitter for doing it as a racist like that. And that shocked me the first time it happened and the second time and the third time and the 10th time. Like, how do you not understand that this is the job, (laughs) you know, like, but it was like the very idea of running a Republican was considered the crime of both sidesism of giving them the chance to have their say. And that was a crime of racism in the new um, obviously it's not racist to do that, but that was considered by, you know, by the sort of far lefties on Twitter who really are good at creating mobs. And so that would happen a lot. Um, people would try to get me fired for running Republicans, which like, you know, I somehow managed to, I think because it, you know, if it had been after George Floyd, it could have, maybe it would have worked, but that I remember being really surprised by because that is literally the job is to, present you with an, a point of view you hadn't considered, but that was now being smeared as like the biggest right. moral crime in the universe, I think, which is racism, you know? So um, that, that I think was very shocking to me in the beginning. And I, I, I'm still shocked by it. Like I haven't gotten used to it, even though it's like literally the, the lingua franca of the day. Yeah. You know, I say this a lot. The reason that I became a writer, that I became an essayist and a journalist and later an opinion columnist was because I wanted to look at things in a counterintuitive way. Mm. And I I loved to think critically and I wanted to be around other people who were doing so. And that's what we were all doing. Like that was the job, right? So it's just remarkable the way the very qualities that drew a lot of us into the business and has have drawn journalists and curious people into the business for for decades now that's like the opposite of the job and it's it's been in such a short time that that flip has occurred i it like it makes me sad but it also just like i try to i try to kind of puzzle out how much of this sensibility is coming from a place of people truly truly believing this stuff um, and how much of it is coming from like a power grab or opportunism. I mean, it's a whole bunch of things at once as everything always is, but how do you kind of pull apart the, the different strands of, of the belief systems that are driving this phenomenon? I think they really believe it. Um, I do. And that's my way of giving the benefit of the doubt and being like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to act like um, people are just cowards or people are evil or cynical or like, cause I'm not going to get anywhere with that. You know what I mean? I just, I prefer to think 
They really believe this. They really want to end racism. I really want to end racism. I'm going to be able to convince them that they're actually perpetuating it with this nonsense and not solving it. You know, like that's kind of the way I'm going into this. Um, And I think that with a lot of the COVID stuff, you can see that it really is. They really believe it. Like, um, for example, like the inability to even consider that maybe, you know, antibodies testing could work instead of a vaccine for someone who doesn't want the vaccine, right? Like there's no, absolutely not. It has to be our way or the highway. Like you can see that that is really, really deeply ingrained. Like, you know, old people will die and children will die if you don't do it exactly the way we want you to, you know, even whatever the consequences be damned, right? Like that you could see there's like a real belief animating it. So that's kind of how I, I think it's just, if the more generous you are with the people that you disagree with, the more likely you are to be able to convince them, I think. And that, that's a big, that was a big challenge I had with the book is really remembering every single day that these people who I think are doing things that are really dangerous for America and really dangerous for like people of color, um, that they're doing it out of a place of good heartedness. And um, I'll give you an example. Do you remember when AOC wore that dress tax the rich to the Met Gala? Right. So that was like, to me, if she had done that before I wrote the book, I wouldn't have needed to write the book. Like that is what the book is about. It's about like somebody who is clearly benefiting from, you know, the the meritocratic squeeze that elevates the smart and the talented and the beautiful, right? Um, acting like an outsider, going to the place of the most conspicuous consumption and acting like doing so in a thousand dollar dress with a cheeky slogan that everybody there loves is an act, a revolutionary act. Like, you know what I mean? That is, that's what I'm talking about is the, like the aesthetics of revolution that is actually a defense of the meritocratic status quo that like disempowers so many Americans. Right. It's like, it was a perfect encapsulation of it. Um, but they, a, a video came out, um, um, by Vogue that uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez had filmed while she was getting ready for the Met Gala. So before the backlash, And you could really see in this video that she had no idea that the backlash was coming. Like it was actually a really heartbreaking video because she came off as so um, like innocent and wide eyed and sure that this was going to be this amazing revolutionary moment. And she had no clue that there would be any backlash from the left, that there would be any backlash from anybody except the right wingers who are always attacking her no matter what she does. Right. And that's currency for her. Of course, she wants to get attacked by the right. Totally, totally. And to me, like watching that video, like it came out two days after the, the Met Gala. So in the midst of um, the reaction against her and it just broke my heart. Like it just really reinforced for me again, like she's not a cynical actor. She truly believes that putting on that dress and going to the Met Gala and posing was like this revolutionary act and of course, using the language of a woman of color, you know, infiltrating blah, blah, blah. When actually what she is, is like a Republican American dream, right? She is like, <laughs> right. right? Like she's proof of the American dream that if you're beautiful and brilliant, like, you know, you will end up in the Met Gala at age 30. Like, you know what I mean? As a Congresswoman, like, 
So I think to me, like that's, I try to hold that in, in, in mind a lot, like AOC in that video, getting dressed for the Met Gala, like really convinced that this is, that she's on the path of good, because I think that person is easily convinced that, you know, it's not, and that there are other things we should be doing, like respecting the working class of all races who tend to be a lot more conservative than us and making sure that there's space for their views in the public sphere. But I wanted to ask you something, Megan. So you're, I, you're, as I said before, like, you're so brave, like, you never seem to um, prevaricate or fear the mob or like, you just don't, you're, you don't seem to be struggling with what a lot of journals are struggling with. I'm sure you are, but I want to know, like, where do you get your courage to sort of stand up and just speak your truth in a climate that's really not hospitable to it? Like, where does that come from for you? You know, well, thank you for saying that. Um, You know, there, I can't pretend that there's not some of that inside me. I mean, it might not look that way on the surface, but yeah, that is something I think about a lot. And I, I come, I keep coming back to the possibility that it's a personality trait or a kind Mm. of temperament. Um, I, I just, I think when it comes to my writing and my thoughts and my ideas, that stuff exists in a separate compartment from sort of the rest of my life. It's like, you know, as a person Mm. in the world, I don't want people to be mad at me. I mean, I really don't like it when people are mad at me. Like like, I do not want to get in trouble. I'm always Uh worried that I said something wrong, you know, and, uh, but for some reason I'm so, my writing is just so it, it just is its own entity and I'm protective of it and I won't let anybody touch it and I won't let anybody sort of get at it. And so I guess I just kind of shift into a different sort of mode when it, when it comes to that. I mean, there's also just the very basic reason, which is I, I started writing and publishing before the internet. So I was writing controversial pieces and kind of you know, uh-huh. inviting people to think about things differently and getting in trouble in the in the 90s, starting in the mid 90s. And I would get letters to the editor and people would be really angry that way, but it never went beyond that. So I was able to kind of cut my teeth in in the safe space of pre-social media. And that's, that's so interesting. An incredible gift. And I I am the last generation that was able to do that. And, you know, I've been saying lately, as much as I hate getting older, I would rather, I would, I'm glad, I'm so glad I'm the age that I am. Like, you know, getting older is just going to come with it. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a 40 year old. I wouldn't want to be somebody who was born 10 years later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about you? Because you, I mean, you're working at Newsweek. Uh, you know, that's not exactly the National Review. So, Well, Newsweek, actually, their mission statement right now is to oppose cancel culture. So I'm very lucky. You know, people are like, aren't you worried you're going to get canceled? And I'm like, well, it would look really bad if they did. But no, I I, they really are very invested in having, um, you know, opinion from across the political spectrum. I don't know. Are we the last ones where you're going to be able to see like a pro-life and a pro-choice person one after another debating each other? You know, I don't know. I mean, you really don't see the liberal outlets venturing very far into the right anymore. And of course, the right wing outlets don't venture into the left. So I'm really proud to be working at Newsweek and um, feel like what we're doing there is really important. Um, 
Yeah, I don't feel like a very brave person. Um, so I. <laughs> well, you must be brave as well, but I, you must be brave because you were in academia. You have a PhD from UC Berkeley, I believe, in English. I think specifically <laughs> the 18th century novel. That's yes. terrifying. So, how, first of all, how did you survive in academia? And then what brought you over to journalism from there? I was so unpopular at Berkeley. And it's just so funny because I wasn't even like myself then. Like, <laughs> well, were you, was this in your 20s? I was, it was in my 20s. And um, it was just like very clear that you were supposed to think a certain way and be a certain way. I mean, it, it wasn't the, the woke revolution hadn't happened yet, but I was still very unpopular. And, um, the thing I, I, I tell people about getting a PhD is it actually explains a lot about what we're seeing in journalism, which is, so I feel like what we've seen is this sort of, you know, what I write about in the book is that there's been this elevation and mainstreaming of ideas that were considered the sort of lunatic academic fringe as recently as 10 years ago, you know, things like open borders, intersectionality, quote unquote, anti-racism that forces you to talk about race in every single conversation, right? All these ideas that have become very, very mainstreamed and normalized. And a lot of them are very counterintuitive is kind of the thing, right? Like, so, you know, the idea that the 1619 Project, for example, oh, you know, like you think America was founded on freedom. Actually, the exact opposite is the truth the truth right this this document the constitution it says it's about freedom but actually it's about slavery right like that move right like you might have thought that there were two sexes that you need a man and a woman to perpetuate the species but actually that view is transphobic that's hate speech right like you might have thought that an ideal society didn't take into account the color of people's skin but the content of their character well actually that is racist right like you that counter intuitive spin, right? Like the reversal that makes the views of like 90% of Americans, that makes the views of 100% of the working class taboo, essentially, right? And I'm talking about the working class of all races, right? That counterintuitive move, like I recognize that from academia and I'll explain what I mean by that. So like you said, I was working on the 18th century novel and 18th century political philosophy and I was reading texts and writing about texts that um, people who are much smarter than me have been reading and writing about for 300 years, right? <laughs> That's true of a lot of the humanities, right? We're sitting there working on these books and thinking about these books and talking about these books that people who are much smarter than us have been talking about for a really long time, right? And so all of the things that are true about these texts have pretty much already been said, right? Like, it's just like, there's nothing left to say that isn't that is true about these books that no one has by white men though, but yeah, let's face it. They haven't. I mean, I mean, granted, granted, granted. Um, But you know, like the things that are actually true about these books, somebody got there before us because a lot of people who are smarter than us are taught. We're thinking about them for many, many years before us and with, with much fewer distractions. Right. But you can't like write a dissertation. That's like, Oh, actually, you know, this literary critic from 1895 was the one who really cracked the code of Pamela, you know, like case closed, you know, like you can't, you, there's no professional development if you can't come up with something new to say. Right. So what that means is, is like, you have to say something that's probably not true. Like that is where the premium is. In fact, 
it's not just the premium, like in order to have a job at all, you have to be able to make something up about these books, right? That's how you get through the humanities. And so there's like a real premium placed on a counterintuitive take on something that like no one would have thought of before right? because like it's so crazy. I mean, these are thought experiments. Totally. And that's like the totally. magic, the fun of them, but they were never supposed to be applied in any sort of practical, scalable way. Exactly. And it's like, so people will say, well, not all of college is the humanities. That's true. But every college student has to take Composition 101. And those classes are taught by humanities grad students. <laughs> so everybody gets, you know, everyone gets passed through the funnel. And um, I think that that's sort of a lot, you know, where a lot of these ideas are coming from and also why they're so distant from working class views, like so distant. Why, you know, it's like Brahmin leftism is what Thomas Piketty calls it, the French economist. You know, all these ideas are just so, so distant from the people who, you know, all of these elites are purporting to speak on behalf of. Right. So what made you leave? Did you say enough of this? I'm going to go be a journalist. I'm going to find the second worst career. <laughs> I think journalism might be worse than academia because at least academics have a sense of humor, you know, like it's like, they do? Really... <laughs> oh no. Wow. That's yeah, how journalists yeah. have a sense of humor. Oh my gosh. Has it gotten that bad? It's, this is like a, you know, competition for German. <laughs> I feel like there's a sort of pervasive humorlessness uh, in the, uh, in what uh, my, the Rebbe Chris Arnotti calls the front row. <laughs> oh my God, but it didn't used to be that way. The journalists were the funniest, most artist. I mean, and I, you know, I think another important thing, and I'm, I, I, you covered this in, in the book and I'm sure you think about this a lot, you know, the the reason that there are so many upper middle class white elite educated people working in news organizations and media now it's not because of some like you know conspiracy theory or like exclusivity it's because they're the ones who can afford to have low paying careers Totally. It's so funny. It's like, yes, America's newsrooms are embarrassingly, disgustingly white. That is totally accurate. That criticism is totally true. But the reason they're so white is because they are so rich. Like to become a journalist, you really have to come from money. And America's rich happen to be very white. Another disgusting facet of our society. And it's so funny. You never see people putting the two and two together. They're like, no, America's newsrooms are white because the editor, the hiring editors are white supremacists. It's like, really? Are you kidding me with this? No, the editors will do anything to diversify their ranks if they can. I mean, you know, this is also, you know, I've talked about this with people. Why aren't there more black editors, for instance? Why aren't there more reporters uh, of, of color? Well, I don't think at this point it's because anybody is going out of their way to exclude them. If anything, um, people in those groups are in hugely high demand. It's because if you grew up working class person of color, you're and you have the opportunity to go to college, you're going to major in engineering or go to law school. You are not going to, you know, mess around in the humanities and then go get a job at NPR, probably. <laughs> Obviously, there are exceptions, but for the most part, you're not. And I just, it's like, I, I hear from people again and again who seem to think that, you know, there's some sort of like active effort to to keep um keep everybody but the white people out. And it's like, no, only these white people can afford to 
to do pretty hard, demanding, you know, sort of intellectually fatiguing jobs um, that, frankly, at this point, get make less money than your plumber, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely than your plumber. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you know, I'm I'm curious. You um, so you went from academia. I don't mean to to obsess about this, but sort of. What what made you want to to be a journalist? I guess it's a very basic question. Like, what interested you about this world? So I was raised very, very religious, Orthodox Jewish. And it, nobody ever asked me, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, it was just like assumed, you know, the most important thing was to like get married, have children, have a big family. Like that's what everybody I grew up with did. And I really respect that, by the way. I'm not like, I don't mean to to knock that or anything, but the idea of like what my career would be was never something that I was asked like as a young person. Um, I uh, went to college and I did for, I remember I did take an internship um, while I was waiting tables at a magazine after college at a publication. And I, I remember thinking, oh yeah, maybe I would be a journalist. Like that would be cool. But um, I couldn't afford to take another unpaid internship. And so right. I just went to grad school because they pay you to do that. You know, they pay you a stipend to get a PhD. So I was like, okay, I'll just do this. This seems, you know, reasonable, like, you know, reasonable path. Um, and then uh, I moved to New York because nobody in Northern California had any sense of irony. And I, I just, at some point, you just can't live a life surrounded had, by Had people. you grown up in New York? Where were you? <laughs> Um, no, I'm originally from Boston. Okay. Yes. Um, and I just really didn't. I remember I went, I went to um, a conference when, when I was still living in Berkeley. I went to a conference in Texas and I got off the plane and I was walking to the um, conference hall and this homeless guy shouted at me from across the street. Hey, New York, your hometown wants its wardrobe back. And I remember feeling so seen. I was like, oh yeah, I should move to New York. <laughs> I was like, thanks, dude. Um, so I uh, I moved to New York to finish writing the dissertation. I was teaching at a number of different colleges um, to support myself. And then um, Hurricane Sandy happened and I wrote an article and people read it and there was just no going back, Megan. It was like, I could either like um, spend the rest of my life writing a book that six people will read, you know, and then maybe another book that 12 people might read, you know, or I could write articles about people who are being abused by their landlords that, you know, hundreds and maybe thousands of people will read. I just like, there was just, as soon as that article came out, it was just, uh, yeah, just describing the pain of people who were being uh, abused by people in power. Like there's no, I, there's, I don't know that there's anything that makes you feel more alive. You know what I mean? I'm curious too. I mean, you, I think you've talked about, you've described your upbringing as ultra orthodox. Um, I think I heard you say uh, at, at one point, you know, and it occurred to me to wonder how much of your sensitivity toward dogma or just orthodoxy uh, in general comes out of the way you grew up. Well, it's so funny because I think that in Judaism, because the focus is on praxis rather than belief, there's actually a lot of um, freedom of thought. Like there's a lot of critical by, thinking. Say what you mean by praxis. Like, okay, so I'm observant, which means I have to keep Shabbos. 
Um, I can't, you know, use electricity on Shabbat. I can't travel. Um, I can't eat certain things. Um, I, you know, I have to go to the ritual bath once a month. You know, like there's certain like rules that you keep, laws that you follow, praxis, you know, things you do, like literally do rituals. Um, and, and the Torah is a lot less invested in what's going on inside your head. And the Talmud itself, which is like the code of Jewish law, it's just this great book full of these like raucous debates between like everybody, you know, like everyone gets involved in it and all you need is a good zinger to make it into the Talmud. <laughs> you don't have to be like the smartest <laughs> rabbi or the best. It's like sometimes you just have to be the funniest guy in the room. It's just a, an amazing, amazing text. And it's a very irreverent text. I mean, it really teaches you that there's value in irreverence. You know, sometimes the rabbis get in fights with God and they win. Like it's a really cool book. <laughs> It's enormous, but um, so that's sort of, that's what I grew up with. My dad's a very reverent guy. My mom's the daughter of a rabbi. So like they would get into these, you know, they have this very kind of um, sexy, uh, you know, confrontational intellectual life that they're engaged in. It's the sort of this battle that sustains them both. Um, and that, so I grew up like that. Like I grew up thinking that um, you had to be uh, you know, in the fight, you know, and that it didn't, you know, it wasn't really very dogmatic at all. Now, I don't know if that's where, I don't think it's, you know, there are, of course, more dogmatic ultra-Orthodox communities. I wasn't ultra-Orthodox. Um, it was more really just strict Orthodox, but, um, but I think that that was very much the, the world that I grew up in and the, the world that I came to like love. And it's so funny because, you know, I was secular for many years and I came back to it. And I remember, though, something, you know, about gender, like <laughs> I was sure that, you know, when I left strict Orthodox Judaism and became secular, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. W women are going to be treated like exactly, you know, equal, exactly the same, whatever. I'm never going to have to defer to a man again. I'm never going to have to, you know, trade on my sexuality ever again. And it was like, you know, lo and behold, you know, <laughs> the secular world was like... <laughs> Um, very much about um, like very much an inversion of a lot of the things that I grew up with. But um, that is so that is so interesting. <laughs> what, you're, what you're describing about that kind of spirit of debate in your upbringing is what I experienced in my early years as a writer with oh, other writers. Wow. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, and like you just it you internalize that like it's just the way my mind works and what I value in my peers and my friends and my colleagues. And, you know, so much of the, you know, people talk about how a newsroom used to be, uh, for instance, and just, it was combative and loud and, you know, often rude and um, kind of, you know, people making off color jokes, but it was all part of the spirit of, putting together the highest quality product you could and listening to all points of view and having camaraderie. And so, yeah, it's really, it's interesting, isn't it? How, um, how these things that we think of as, you know, potentially, potentially limiting or, you know, kind of old fashioned or backwards were actually much more, um, much more open-minded, I guess. How did you grow up? What was, what was your upbringing like? Uh, well, I grew up in a, in a family of musicians. I'm the only writer oh, and I wow. was, yeah, it's really weird. It's a very strange thing. Um, Megan, that's why your writing is so musical. Oh my God. Yeah, I, I definitely, so yeah. I, yeah. And I think that's why I write essays too. I mean, I like a book of essays to me is like, 
like an album or something, you know, they need to be kind of wow. in, in one another's company, but that's so beautiful. It's funny because I think, you know, my parents, you know, they, they like, you know, they were college educated. I mean, but they didn't really read. I mean, they were not serious readers. Although I was thinking earlier, oh. my father, my father always got the New York review of books Although uh-huh. he prided himself on never having read an actual book, but he loved getting the New York <laughs> Review of Books. And one of the things we would laugh at the um, at the names of the academic titles because all the university presses would have ads, right? And then they would, uh-huh. the, you know, these crazy postmodern, just like totally <laughs> off the wall um, uh, names of books. And my father found this hilarious. And anyway, so yeah, I, I mean, I definitely had a sense that it was important to, to be smart, but also not take yourself that seriously. But, you know, again, I think that, you know, this interview is not about me, but I I think that because I grew up in a family that was doing something other than what I was doing, I'm able to, I'm able to separate it. Like I didn't, my, my parents, like, I didn't like it when they were upset about something I wrote, but at the end of the day, it's not up to them. Like, I just don't, my work was just, an island unto itself and within myself. Wait, that's so interesting. So your parents would read your articles and then express their displeasure if they disagreed? Oh, they hated them. No, they didn't disagree. Oh my they, God, they that's so cool. Like it. They didn't like it if, if, if it was about them or they wouldn't uh-huh, be uh-huh, writing uh-huh. Sort of personal essays in my, uh-huh, in my 20s. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. You know, to the extent that they could, you know, some people were reading them like on a purely solipsistic level, you know, oh, they, no, my parents were mortified because they didn't really read anything else. So they didn't have anything to compare it to. Like, they just thought that I was the most confessional person <laughs> who ever walked the planet. And I'm like, really? I could hand you some other material. But um, yeah, I just think that I, I was kind of protected from criticism. I mean, if I had been a musician and I think my, my brother who does music struggles with this more there, my father's, especially criticism would have seeped into everything and it would have been, but but because they just didn't know of what they spoke, um, that it was, it was easier for me, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the other thing too, I'm thinking like the, I remember starting out when I, when I, I guess it was, I published my second book, Amazon comments were a thing by then. So this would have been like around 2003 or so. And I remember just being horrified at how stupid they were. And then there was a period for about 10, 10, 11, 12 years where the comment section was just notoriously full of idiots. And like, you know, when I was an LA times columnist, it was always just like you were rolling your eyes at the comments. And I was always angry that that the comments were sometimes like adjacent to the column itself. Like you didn't even have to scroll to the bottom. Like you could kind of <gasps> see what people were saying. I think there was like a uh, moment where the web layout kind of had that quality. But anyway, but so you all you reliably knew that the reporters and the that the writers were smart and that the commenters were dumb. And there was a moment. I don't know when, maybe around this time, 2014, or suddenly the commenters were reasonable and, and the, and the writers had lost their minds. I mean, mm. you, do you do this thing, Bhatia, where you, like you start reading the comments before you even read the piece just to get a sense of like a reality, oh. check, what you're in for? That's so smart though. But it's really, it's not good. I mean, I'm not going to do it on a news story, but if I see some kind of clickbait thing, not even clickbait. There was a piece in the, 
was it in the New York Times? There was something really recently that was just totally absurd. And I knew it was going to be. So I read the comments first. That's so smart. See, to, you're a populist uh, like myself. me. <laughs> yes, I am. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, let's say more about that because you've described yourself as, as a socialist. Um, and yet I think, you know, the sort of Bernie bro socialist type is also very hooked into what we're calling wokeness, this kind of social justice um, view. Uh, Does that sort of person say, oh, no, 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 you're not allowed to be a socialist because you're not on board in every way? Oh, yeah, totally. Or people will say to me, like, you're just full of conservative talking points. And I'll be like, I'm happy to be the conservative socialist. Like people will get mad at you for going to talk to conservatives. I'll be like, are you kidding me? You're mad that I'm going to talk to conservatives. I'm telling them to be socialists. <laughs> like, okay. You do you, I guess. But yeah, by socialist, I don't mean, I don't really mean like um, an expanded social safety net. I mean, more just like that our entire economic agenda should be about protecting labor and protecting the working class, which is the opposite of what, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans have been doing for the last 30 years. So I don't really have a lot in common with the the Bernie socialism when it comes to things like free college. Like to me, free college is not a way of bolstering the working class. It's a way of erasing it. Like a lot of people are just not college people and they deserve to live with dignity and they deserve to have jobs that give them dignity and that, that they can feed their families on. And I think that there's very little appetite for that in what's called the progressive left or the socialist left today. Like there's a lot more, you know, on issues of identity and a lot less of an economic agenda that is geared towards the autonomy of working Americans. That's kind of like, that's all I care about really. Um, So I think, yeah, it's like, you know, is that socialism? Is that Marxism? Is it, you know, populism, left-wing populism? I'm not sure exactly what to call it, but I feel like we have this fake debate going on in America where it's like the Republicans are offering offering this like, you know, crap, trickle-down, garbage, free market stuff that we know doesn't work and immiserates the poor. And like the liberals are offering an expanded welfare, including things like universal basic income, where sort of the idea is that you won't have an... Oh, you won't have a working class anymore, right? You'll have, you know, the Einsteins will be plucked out and sent to college and everybody else will live like at the beneficence of liberal politicians and liberal voters who will give them, you know, $2,000 a month to sit at home and watch TV on flat screen TVs. Like that's kind of, those are the two options. And of course, neither of those is a working class agenda. Neither of those is about solidarity and the power that comes from numbers and 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 granting dignity to the working class who are the backbone of this country who do all of the things we literally need to survive and the most depressing thing Megan is you would have thought that the pandemic would have made this so clear in fact the pandemic i think has uh, reignited a hunger for economic populism on the right among conservatives, you know, but it's really done the opposite among liberals. Like I'm seeing on our side, just people really leaning into the class divide and really leaning into just the out of touchness of like, you know, the American elites, especially on the left. Um, Not that the, you know, the right wing elites care that much about the working class, but you do see politicians putting out proposals that are only geared at at that. Um, And you do see sort of 
a few Republicans who seem to have learned what I think is the right lesson from the Trump era, which is that there is a hunger for economic populism among conservative working class Americans, just like there is among, you know, liberal working class Americans. Um, of course, there are so many Republicans who think that the lesson of the Trump era was like, own the libs, you know, who needs economics? <laughs> so I don't want to like say too many nice things about them, but uh, it's just a disaster. Like there's such an opportunity here. That's really what I want to see. I want to see a realignment around populism of of left and right. And why do you think that the pandemic exacerbated this? Because when the when the pandemic started, I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be the end of the culture wars because this is so much bigger than that. And people are going to like, you know, get like, you know, they're going to they're going to realize that there are, there's such a thing as life and death and they're going to stop belly aching about, you know mansplaining and the like. Uh, But that did not happen. It actually got worse. Do you think that that's because people were in front of their screens? The people who could afford to be in front of their screens, by the way, there were a whole bunch of people who were working. It was business as usual, delivering our Amazon products. Well, you know, I'm a Marxist, so I think a lot of it is motivated by economic anxiety. And I think that the meritocratic elite is very economically anxious because the funnel to having, you know, a good life and a good job and to your kids being, you know, more prosperous than you is really, really, really small right now. And so, and, and, and young people know this, you know, they know that their prospects are sort of in the toilet. And, and so the more anxious you are, and then you see this, sort of language that's very much used in order to separate the good from the bad and the employable from the not employable. Of course, you're going to use that, you know? So I, I think that a lot of it comes not just from the elites rising, but also from class anxiety and the fear of uh, downward mobility, which is affecting so many Americans, so many middle-class Americans, you know, that's, that's sort of what we learned from that whole, like, you know, college uh, application scandal with all of these celebs and millionaires paying people to get their kids into these like second rate colleges, you know, it's like, um, save them from the university of Arizona. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so like i think there you know that, that we should be sort of having solidarity around these issues but i don't want to give do a false consciousness argument to the elites because i, I exoriate them for doing false consciousness arguments against the working class so i i do sympathize but um i, I want to ask you what you think of the word woke it's in your subtitle um, it's a word that comes up. You talk about um, the great awakening. It's a word that comes up a lot. Um, I've talked about how I'm, I'm uncomfortable using it because I think it's been weaponized and diluted. It happens to be a great word just as words go, like the way it rolls up. Yeah, totally. Um, but did you, did you have reservations about, about leaning on it or have you made peace with it? What's your thinking around this? I've made peace with it because I see a lot of um, people of color who share my worldview using it exactly the same way I do. And and what I mean by that is like how I use it is, you know, obviously, so the word woke started as black slang in the 70s and 80s to being aware of the ways in which state-sponsored racism is still alive and well in America. And obviously, I think that's a really important thing. Um, You know, for example, you know, racism in the police, um, you know, things like that in in the education system where, you know, children in Baltimore have a 1.0 GPA. Like this is stuff, these these are moral emergencies. Um, And it's very um, actually nice to see Republicans finally caring about these issues. 
So that's not what I mean by woke. Like, I don't mean, you know, advocating and agitating for police reform. Um, like I said, a moral emergency. What I mean by woke is what happens when affluent white liberals get their hands on this as an issue and using a moral panic around race to distract from the class issues that are the real dividing line in America and thereby perpetuating the very racial and economic inequality that they claim to be standing against. Right. So for example, defund the police, you know, like something that's opposed by 81% of black Americans, like those black Americans know that we need police reform much better than we oh, do. More than anybody. Yes. More than anybody. Yeah, and yet they're more than 81% actually. Is it? I'm surprised that it's not more than 81%. Oh, oh, oh yes, yes, yes. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, 80, 81% is pretty high. But, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, so uh, you know, they, they, the people who are most impacted by police brutality and they're saying, stop talking about defunding the police. That's not what we want. We're going to vote against that every single time. Every single time you give us that opportunity, we're going to vote for the candidate who stands against that. Like that's what, when it's, that's what wokeness is. Woke is the view that is against the interests of black Americans, of the descendants of slaves who we have abandoned again and again and again. And now we use woke terminology to further that. So for example, you know, like open borders, like black Americans have paid the price for illegal immigration more than anybody else in this country, you know, or, you know, intersectionality. It's just like a morally repulsive view that says that somehow the the oppression that Caitlyn Jenner faces such that it is, is somehow intertwined with, you know, children living in Baltimore who have the life expectancy of somebody living in the Congo. Like to me, that's morally repugnant. Like the idea that those are in any way comparable, in any way linked. Like one of those is a moral emergency. And one of those is, you know, I wish Caitlyn Jenner all the best. Like she's a billionaire. She doesn't need me advocating for her. So like, that's what woke is to me. It's like the, it's that, that perversion of caring about racial justice um, that happens when white liberals become obsessed with it and um, use it unconsciously, definitely unconsciously, but to further perpetuate inequality of all kinds. So it's kind of like faux woke. It's like folk or something. I feel like there's got to be some kind of... Yeah. Got to be some... Well, like I said, I I think I probably would have felt more um, anxious about using it that way if I didn't see a lot of um, Black people, intellectuals, um, you know, civil society leaders who I really respect, who I know agree with me who's, you know, who I rely on when forming my own opinions, like using it in the same way. But I I hear the criticism that it's kind of, you know, taking a good thing and then acting like it's bad and that that could be unclear in a way and that it's done in the service of signaling like what side you're on on an issue. Like, I, I definitely accept that criticism. Yeah, I think oh, it's, no, it's a great word. I wanted to call my book Woke Me When It's Over. <laughs> That's really good. And I thought it was too... <laughs> I thought it was too like Laura Ingram or something. I thought it was sort of like, I don't know. It wasn't, it wasn't my classy brand. Well, I, I know you have to go in a few minutes because we um, we spent the first half hour of this discussion doing uh, fixing audio issues. <laughs> we couldn't actually hear each other. But, you know, I, before you go, I want to ask you, have you lost friends over your your ways of thinking and your speaking out about these issues? Megan, I've lost so many friends all on the left. I mean, I don't know that I have a relationship left from a far lefty that was able to resist the temptation to denounce me on Twitter. Like I, I, every time I think surely I've hemorrhaged the last of my 
you know, everybody who's stuck with me this far will, will continue to stick by me. And then the next day, another one will, will denounce me. And I, I find that to be so sad. Like when I was the wokest lefty, my right wing friends would at periodically, you know, WhatsApp me. Like, oh, Bobby, are you sure you, are you sure you think this? You know, I've never considered maybe seeing it from this point of view. Never once said a bad word. You know what I mean? Like they were all in this. Like, look, we're friends, and you're really wrong about these things. Your views are dangerous. Maybe one day I'll convince you. And somehow, like all of my friendships on the left, like dissolved in the face of the temptation to denounce. And I don't know why that is, Megan. And I wish somebody would explain it to me. Have you lost friends? Um, I've certainly, there are friends I'm not in touch with anymore and I'm not sure why I definitely, I mean, I definitely, there are peers and colleagues, people who used to, who used to approve of me sometimes in a really big way are disappointed in me. People have registered their disappointment. Let's just put it that way. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I don't, the funny thing is I, if they, they say that they loved my, my earlier, my earlier, funnier work, you know, they say they loved my work, you know, in the nineties and that stuff was just as boundary pushing and irreverent and for lack of a better word, unwoke, politically incorrect Mm -hmm. as anything I do now. And it was okay then, but it's not now Uh. the very things that they liked me for. They now are disappointed uh, by in, in me for. So I don't, I don't know, but it's like, do you, do you think that on some core level, they are not really sure of their beliefs? They kind of know this doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So they, they, they push back harder. Oh, um, I, I, I really wish I knew like, cause it's so painful and um, I it's like the loss of the ability to be in those conversations. Obviously, I still have woke friends, but like from a certain sort of far, far left cohort, I don't anymore. And um, I just like I I I regret the loss of their influence on me, just as I regret the loss of my influence on them. Like, and and I just wanted to say again, like it's not. There are people who, like Isaac Bailey, for example, somebody who I truly, truly admire who I really disagree with, who really disagrees with me, who is, I hope a friend (laughs) who has influenced me and influences me every single day. Like, um, obviously I still have friends like that, people like that, but there, you know, from, there's like a certain lot, a Rubicon of, you know, (laughs) wokeness over which, you know, I can see all of these relationships receding. And, um, I, I just like, I really, I think, I just don't understand what is the correlation between like leftism and that, because I think if I could, if I could crack that nut, I'd probably be a much more effective communicator, which is of course the most important thing in which it doesn't just mean talking. It also means listening. Like why would someone take away your ability to listen to them, your ability to be influenced by them? Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but little by little in the way that Isaac really has influenced me. Like, why would you deny somebody that who you think is so wrong? I, I think that's so, I, I'm just going to say something also that I think like in that context, something that's like very controversial in my community, in the Jewish community, which is that I never um, thought that the Women's March leaders should denounce Louis Farrakhan for this very reason. Like there was a lot of, you know, 
they, people were really pushing them to do that, right? Do you remember that? Like yeah, denounce Louis Farrakhan, denounce Louis Farrakhan. And I always said and continue to say when I speak to Jewish communities, like, yeah, Louis Farrakhan is a huge anti-Semite, a huge misogynist, a huge transphobe. Um, you know, he's he's horrible. You know, he's one of America's most, you know, prominent anti-Semites. Like, I do not expect anybody to denounce him. I want Tamika Mallory to be in relationship with Louis Farrakhan because every time, who says she's not influencing him, you know? Like this idea that someone should denounce their problematic elders as opposed to staying in relationship with them and making clear to everybody, I don't agree with him about the Jews. I don't think Jews are termites, you know? Just putting that out there. To be sure. To be sure, exactly. Exactly. You know, and I, so I really truly believe that, like, you know, if I have one message, it's like, stay in relationship with problematic people. Like who knows who's going to, you know, you will influence them. Like, why shouldn't you influence them? The more virtuous person always has more influence, you know? So yeah, that's, that's, that's my, yeah. My I, answer I, think, friendship. I think, yeah. I think problematic elder is going to be my new. <laughs> I like that. I like that. idea. Um, well, this has been a great conversation and and the book is is really smart and thorough and incredibly interesting. I just before you go you you know you end the book with a sort of call to action. You outline sort of several ways that we can start to rethink things in terms of our relationship to media and the news. Do you have hope about about the future when it comes to the way we receive facts and information? I think Americans are too smart for this crap. And uh, (laughs) I I have so much faith in in our people, Megan. What about you? Do you have hope? Uh, I do. I think it's obvious that the vast majority of people see right through this. I feel like we're in an emperor's new clothes situation where everyone's just nodding along. And um, I'm I'm really excited for like maybe five years from now, yeah, we, or, you know, maybe ten, where we look back on this time and yeah. like, oh my God, what were we thinking? <laughs> like the, the history books are gonna have a have a you know a fun time. Uh, and you you will be prominent in them as somebody who never caved and who always stood for the right and the good. <laughs> Well, then I guess we've come full circle. If you're, you can, you can praise me on the top and praise me, praise me at the end. That's very, that's very, very generous and very, means a lot coming from you. Um, This is, I won't say brave book because I don't like to say brave to writers because as I say, it's not about being brave. It's about doing your job. Um, Amen, sister. And you have done your job remarkably. So Batya, thank you so much for, for speaking with me and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure, Megan. That was my conversation with Batya Ungar-Sargon. She is the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek and the author of Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast with me, your problematic elder. To support the show, please consider joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. If you join at any level, you get early access to the podcast, as well as access to the full-length versions of video interviews I'm offering under the show's new feature, The Unspeakeasy. These are conversations that are largely totally separate from the podcast itself, because why not? 
If you join at the mid-tier level or higher, you get $10 off your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. You also get to join our bi-weekly listener hangouts on Zoom, where we have in-depth discussions of recent episodes. If you'd like to support the show without spending a dime, please consider leaving a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's actually tremendously helpful. The show will be off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday, but I'll be back the following with another super nuanced guest. Until then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.